The billion dollar Batman franchise was held for ransom for nearly 10 years. All you care about is money. This town deserves a better class of criminal. All because Hollywood lacked the vision to see what it could be. Michael Uslan, the originator and the executive producer of the Batman movies, had the vision that Hollywood lacked, and his tenacity and a moment of perseverance that led to one of the most successful film franchises of all time, leaping from the page to the big screen with a global impact in its wake. The whole world is laughing at Batman, and that just killed me. <laughs> I, I don't want to get too far ahead. That's what kept me alive for the 10 years it took from the time I bought the rights to Batman from DC Comics through the rejection by every studio and mini major in Hollywood. It became my philosophy. Start at the top and work your way down. I was the only person on the planet Earth who showed up. I showed up with passion. I showed up with knowledge. I showed up with experience. And then finally, I showed up with money. I'm Mike Kading. Welcome to Zero to Unicorn, where we dive into the lives of the unique visionaries among us that have made a billion dollar impact in the world. As you'll hear, Batman is such a critical part of Michael's life, and the world of comics is so powerful. I wanted to understand what got Michael to first start falling in love with comics, and specifically Batman. Well, comic books is easy. My mom said I learned to read from comic books before I was four years old. And my br older brother, Paul, who's four years older than me, would bring them into the house. And that was my first exposure. Also, if you were a kid growing up in the 50s and 60s, there was something that nobody born later would ever begin to understand. And that is the barbershop. Back in the day, barbershops had broken down card tables with loads of old comic books on them, sometimes coverless. And it was at the barbershop experience every two weeks that we would have a chance to read really old comic books and get into it. And those were two of the most important contributing factors to me in beginning my own road to geekdom. So that was comics. But what about Batman? I was five years old. My dad had given my brother Paul um, 30 cents to go to the candy store down the street at my grandparents' place. And we walked into this store and it was floor to ceiling racks of comic books. I was five. So my brother explained to me that we had 30 cents, so he got to pick two comic books and I got to pick one. They were 10 cents each. So he put me up on his shoulders. And I remember distinctly that there was a Batman Detective Comics with the Batmobile looking like an assault tank. And I remember thinking, that's too scary. And instead, I picked Sugar and Spike. Uh, which was a DC comic that was great for, for kids about two babies who spoke their own quiet language that the adults could never understand. So I went home with Sugar and Spike. But starting around age five and six, the comfort zone was Superman because Superman was on TV all the time. 
And we knew Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen and Perry White, and we knew Clark Kent, and it was truly a comfort zone. It wouldn't be until I was a far more mature and sophisticated seven that I would be able to get into Batman, and that was it for me. And it was the whole concept that Batman has no superpowers, that I could be Batman if my dad bought me a cool car. And that was incredible. Plus he had the greatest supervillains in history, which was all so very awesome to me as a kid. At this point in the story, Batman had made his way onto television, but it was very different from how Michael envisioned the Cape Crusader. It was a cold, dark night in New Jersey. I had been waiting months for this night. I was so excited because the Batman TV show was about to premiere. Understand when I was growing up, the only comic book related stuff we had in movies or TV, we had Superman and very briefly Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. That was it. So this was, this was big time. The show starts. Wow, that, that animation looks like Bob Kane, Jerry Robinson art. It's in color. Oh, they spent a lot of money on the sets. The Batmobile is really cool. And then 20 minutes in, it hits me like a ton of bricks. Oh man, this is a comedy. Batman is a joke. The whole world is laughing at Batman and that just killed me. So that night in my basement den, I made a vow at the end of that show, just like young Bruce Wayne once made a vow, but he did it over the slaughtered bloody bodies of his parents in the street. My parents were safe in the kitchen upstairs. And I said, somehow, someday, I am going to show the world the true Batman, the one created by Bill and Bob and, and with Jerry, the, the creature of the night and the, and the disturbed villains. And I'm going to find a way to remove these new words that are popping out everywhere, pow, zap, and wham, from the collective consciousness of the world culture. That was the night of the vow. What a powerful moment in a young man's life. This would be Michael's North Star. This moment would be instrumental for the future of both Batman and Michael. But it's one thing to have a vow. The real question is how do you make it a reality. What do you do when you're a blue collar kid from New Jersey? You don't come from money. My dad was a stonemason. My mom was a bookkeeper. You are in love with comic books, movies, TV, animation. How do you, how do you make that your life? How do you get there from here? I didn't know anybody in Hollywood. I had no relatives in the business. So how do you jump a Grand Canyon? So I just started looking for any opportunity where I could get my foot in the door that much. Just needed some door to be open a smidgen. And my moment came when I was in college. I went to Indiana University, Bloomington, Indiana. It was the 1970s. And they had an experimental curriculum department in their arts and sciences division. So if you had an idea for a college course that had never been taught, didn't matter if you were an undergrad or whoever, if you could get the backing of a department on campus and pitch it to the dean, and if the dean approved it, you could teach that course for three hours of credit on campus. So I said, oh my God, there never in the world has been a comic book course, a accredited college course. 
so I went to the folklore department and I said to my professor, well, first of all, comic books are a legitimate American art form, but more importantly, our superheroes are our modern day mythology. The ancient gods of Greece, Rome, Egypt all still exist, only they wear spandex and capes. And he said, Michael, you're absolutely right. It's the same basic heroic stories. And it doesn't matter if we call them King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, or if we call them the Avengers. It's the same thing, I'll back you. So with my hair down to my shoulders, wearing, not this one, not that one, but I was wearing a Spider-Man t-shirt. I just had to show you how geeky I am. I was wearing a, a Spider-Man t-shirt and a bunch of comic books under my arm. And I walk into this conference room. The Dean takes one look at me and says, so you're the fellow who wants to teach a course on funny books at my university. Okay. I knew I was in deep trouble. I then launch into the first pitch of my career. He let me speak two minutes, cut me off. He said, stop, Mr. Uslan, really? Come on. He said, I read comic books when I was a little boy. I read every issue of Superman I could get my hands on, but all comic books are, are cheap entertainment for little children. Nothing more, nothing less. I reject your theory. So this became a life changing moment for me because rather than just bow my head and pick up my funny books and walk out, I figured I had nothing to lose. And I stood my ground and I said, Dean, may I just ask you two questions? He said, ask me anything you want. I said, are you familiar with the story of Moses? He said, yeah. So I said, so very, very briefly, could you just summarize the story of Moses for me? So he sat back, he goes, I don't know what game you're playing here, but yeah, I'll play this with you. Uh, the Hebrew people were being persecuted. Their firstborn were being slain. Hebrew couple place their infant son in a little wicker basket, send him down the river Nile, where he's discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. When he grows up and learns of his true heritage, he becomes a great hero to his people. I said, stop. That was great. You said before, when you were a kid, you read Superman comics. By any chance, you remember the origin of Superman? He said, sure. The planet Krypton was about to blow up. A scientist and his wife place their infant son in a little rocket ship and send him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents who raised him as their own son. And then he stops, stares at me for an eternity, and then says, your course is accredited. I'm now the world's first college professor of comic books. The lesson that I'm learning from Michael is that passion is such a key part of success. Because without passion, Michael wouldn't have been able to do all the things required to make his Batman come to life. But what's Michael's perspective on this? It's absolutely true, but there's two more steps you haven't mentioned. One is you got to get up off the damn couch. You've got to take your passion once you discover it got to get up off the couch and be proactive. The world doesn't owe you a thing. Nobody's coming to you. You've got to get up and make it happen. And if you do that, is it quick? No. Is it easy? No. But I proved you can make your dreams come true if you do that. But when everything goes against you and when everything gets tough and when those doors aren't really opening, you have to be able to have it within you to persevere. It's about commitment. It's the same thing about young Bruce Wayne. 
His parents are murdered. He sacrifices his childhood. He made a vow. He made a commitment. He was going to get the bad guy who did this. He's going to get all the bad guys, even if he has to walk through hell for the rest of his life. And then he honored that commitment. And with all the things hitting him, he persevered, persevered, and persevered. That's what it takes. Batman's our lesson. Okay. So first thing that happened, I called mommy in New Jersey. I was so excited. I said, Ma, yeah, I just pulled this off. This is what I'm doing. And she was very excited. She said, this is great, Michael. Wow. Congratulations. But you know, you can have these great creative ideas. You can do these great creative things. But if you don't market yourself, if you don't market them, no one will ever know about it. I said, Ma, I'm 19 and a half. I'm in Bloomington, Indiana. I have no money. How am I supposed to do that? She said, you're a smart boy. You'll think of something. So I did. Once again, figuring I have nothing to lose. I picked up the telephone. I called United Press International, which back then was as big a news syndicate as the Associated Press is today. I asked to speak to a reporter. Guy gets on the phone and I proceed to scream at this man. What is wrong with you? You're not doing your job. You're supposed to be the watchdogs of our society. He goes, calm down, sir. What are you, what are you talking about? What am I talking about? Are you kidding me? I just heard there's a course on comic books being taught at Indiana University. Are you telling me as a taxpayer in the state of Indiana, they're using my money to teach our children comic books? This is outrageous. This must be some communist plot to subvert the youth of America. And I slammed down the phone. <laughs> it took this guy three days to find out if there really was such a course. He showed up at my door with a photographer. This big article was done with pictures. It was picked up by virtually every newspaper in North America, a bunch in Europe. My phone started to ring and it just never stopped. It was, I was invited on radio talk shows, TV talk shows. I never taught one class where the classroom wasn't filled with television cameras and reporters. It was unbelievable. That's such a gutsy move. So bold. I don't know if I would ever do that. I wonder, where did Michael get the energy, the inspiration to actually make a move like that? To the best of my recollection, I was having a powwow with my two room roommates and my girlfriend. And... And there were probably a couple of beers involved at the time. <laughs> and it was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Uh, I mean, I could, I could call uh, the newspaper, but uh, yeah, well, what if you called the Indianapolis Star? I go, well, uh, you know, the Indianapolis Star, I was thinking of the Bloomington newspaper. And then I think my girlfriend said something like, well, if you're going to call the Indianapolis Star, why don't you call either the New York Times or United Press International? I said, yeah, okay, I'll call United Press International. It became my philosophy. Start at the top and work your way down. And what a great philosophy to have. Start at the top and work your way down. This has certainly challenged me to think about my notions of how to get things done. So where did Michael's story take him next? Um, two weeks after all of these stories broke, I get a call. I got two calls on the same day. First call was this exuberant male voice went something like this. Hi, Michael. This is Stan Lee from Marvel Comics in New York City. Oh my God. He said, Mike, 
everywhere I look, I'm seeing you on TV. I'm reading about you in newspapers. What you're doing is great for the entire comic book industry. How can I help you? On that moment, Stan Lee transformed from being my idol into my mentor, ultimately into my friend. Then we worked together creatively. Then my son, David, and I were two of the producers of his memorial at Grauman's Chinese Theater. And this coming Tuesday, July 18th, um, the Comic-Con Museum in San Diego is going to open up the first ever museum exhibition devoted to the life and legacy of Stan Lee, which I'm curating. It's called Excelsior, the life and legacy of Stan Lee. It's, it's really exciting for me. And uh, when you enter it, it is devoted to Stan Lee and his co-creators of the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. So it's devoted to the co-creators like Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Don Heck, Johnny Romita, John Buscema, St Jim Steranko, Marie and John Severin, Wally Wood. And I have original art. I have all the first issues of all the comics on display. Uh, we have Golden Age art from the early 1940s that we found. It's just great stuff. So this was Michael's breakthrough moment. And for a comic book fan, a Michael's growing notoriety, this was a major one. Hey, it's Mike. Let's beat the banks at their own game. Traditional banks don't have great interest rates, but they charge businesses like Norhart higher rates, and they keep all the profits. Why don't we cut out the middleman and connect directly, thus leaving more for both of us? Invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and get more than you ever could at a bank? This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. You can't overstate Stan Lee's impact on the comic book community. And now he's Michael's mentor. Where could Michael possibly go from here? Saul Harrison, who introduced himself as the vice president of DC Comics in New York. He said, we've been listening to you on the radio, reading about you in magazines. You are a very innovative young man, and we would like to fly you to New York City and discuss ways we might be able to work together. Comic book geek dream come true. They Amazing. fly me to New York, and they offer me a job. I'm going to work summers at DC Comics, but when I go back home, to, when I go back to school in Indiana, they're going to put me on retainer. And that was amazing. So I'm there, I'm working with Julie Schwartz, Murray Boltonoff, Denny O'Neill, Joe Kubert, Carmine Infantino, Bill Gaines, Saul Harrison, Jack Adler. Uh, you know, I don't know if everybody knows all these names, but uh, I was part of the first young group of fans that they were breaking into the industry to eventually run DC or learn how to do it all. And it was Paul Levitz, Bob Rosakis, Jack Harris, um, there was a whole group of us and it, Tony Tallon, and it was just great. We had camaraderie. We were known as the junior woodchucks of DC comics. With Stan Lee and the DC creatives as mentors, I was curious to know how this impacted Michael's work. Did it elevate him closer to his goal of realizing the true Batman? 
Well, with Stan in particular, he made me believe in myself. I mean, this is a guy who I just idolized and mm. um, he saw things in me. He, he brought me in as soon as he went over and started Marvel animation with Margaret Lesh, brought me in. They said, we're gonna be doing a syndicated TV series called Marvel Universe. We're gonna go with two Marvel properties RoboCop and animation, and we're looking for one original creation. What do you got? And I came up with something and, and we used that in the launch. Uh, unfortunately, as happens in the world of TV and movies, the project doesn't ultimately come to fruition. But I, again, it was the beginning of a process of working creatively with Stan. So by the year 2000, I said to him at one lunch, um, what would you say if I brought you over to your chief competitor, DC Comics, and you recreated Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and their superheroes the way you would have done them at Marvel? And Stan said, I think you're crazy. But they would never go <laughs> for it. He goes, that's like GM inviting Henry Ford over to invent a, a, a Chevrolet. He said, they'll never <laughs> go for that. But Paul Levitz, my fellow woodchuck, was now president of DC. And I went to Paul. And Paul said, my God, I can't think of anything that would be more fun. And so for over a year, Stan and I worked at DC with Stan, uh, teaming Stan up with the most legendary artists, hot, young, breaking art talent. And it was an incredible run, all edited by genius editor, Mike Carlin. We had a blast. In order to produce the Batman movies, Michael would have to make sure he gained the movie rights to the Batman series. That couldn't be an easy feat. So how does someone come to own those rights at such a young age? I had been working at DC and I had been mentored in by Saul Harrison and I was his right-hand guy. He was training me, working with me. Um, I would listen to his stories on the history of Hollywood. I would go to lunch with him and his cronies and, and just listen and absorb everything. Saul knew how much I loved this stuff. He knew how passionate I was about it. He knew how expert I had become on the, the history and the trivia of these characters, especially Batman. So I said to Saul one day, what I really wanna do, my goal in life uh, is, oh, this was after my original goal, which was to write Batman comic books, which I did. Uh, Julie Schwartz gave me the, uh, the shot to do that. And Bob Rosakis and I wrote detective comics for a bit. But that was, so that was my eight-year-old dream come true. Now I wanted to go back to that night from January 1966 and honor that vow. So I said, Saul, I want to buy the rights to Batman and make dark and serious Batman movies. He looked like the poster from Home Alone. I was like, Michael, you're crazy. Don't do this. He goes, I don't want to see you lose all your money. Don't you understand? that when Batman went off the air on television, the brand became as dead as a dodo. Nobody's interested in Batman anymore. I said, yeah, but Saul, if we do it in a dark and serious way, there's never been a, a comic book or superhero movie that's dark and serious. This is gonna be like a new form of entertainment. So he said to me at that time, nobody's interested in Batman. We'll hold it. You go get credentials. When you have the credentials come back. So I wound up going to law school, took every course I could find dealing with copyright, trademark, entertainment, communications, got out of law school, went right to work for United Artists, 
when it was a major motion picture studio. I learned how you produce and finance movies. I worked there for four years and I was in charge of the legal business and financial affairs of different movies as they were to be developed or produced. So I wound up in charge of the first three Rocky movies, Black Stallion, which is a beautiful little movie if you've never seen it, uh, Raging Bull. And then for two and a half years of my life, every single day of which was a crisis, the movie Apocalypse Now. They used to say I got the experience of 11 movies on the one. I then, I, I had done that as if it was graduate school, about three and a half years, I went back to Saul. I said, I have the credentials. I want to buy Batman and go make these serious movies. He said, is there any way I can talk you out of this? I said, no, <laughs> he, he said, and this is a quote. All right, schmoozle, come on in. That began a six month negotiation. Okay, so that addresses the first part of the problem. But for part two, how does someone find the money to do something like this? This is why God invented doctors, dentists, and lawyers. <laughs> I went to everybody I knew, not family. I was told you don't go to family asking for money to invest in projects. That's the way you lose family. It's okay to lose friends. <laughs> so, so through all of my connections and everything, my friends reached out to friends who reached out to friends. We got the money. Not one person who invested cared about or knew about Batman. Everybody was investing in me. They were putting their money on, on me. So that responsibility on my shoulders was enormous. It's worth pausing here for a moment. Michael had just completed the rounds of all the major studios with no luck. And just as you might find in the comics, our headstrong protagonist had nowhere else to turn. But as found in the best stories, our protagonist didn't stop and turn around where others might give up. Instead, Michael's story continues. So the first part of the question, which I get asked everywhere I go to speak, People can't even begin to conceive how a kid in his 20s buys the rights to Batman. It's impossible. It's completely inconceivable. But now you know the very unglamorous story of how that occurred. I was the only person on the planet Earth who showed up. I showed up with passion. I showed up with knowledge. I showed up with experience. And then finally, I showed up with money. So now the process begins. Um, you have to understand everything in the context of its times. We're talking circa 1979 to around 1983 in particular. The people who were at the executive level of the movie industry, including agents as well as studio execs, they were adults during the Frederick Wortham seduction of the innocent 1950s attacks on comic books. When Dr. Wortham accused comics of being the cause of the post-World War II rise of juvenile delinquency in America. So that generation looked down their nose at comic books. They had no respect for comic books or their creators. And that's what I had to deal with. So when I go in to pitch Batman, 
I kept getting the same response. Kid, you're crazy. You can't do serious comic book movies. You can't do dark superheroes. You can't make a movie out of an old TV series. Nobody's ever done that before. And it was rejection after rejection to the point was like they were saying, this is like the worst idea I've ever heard. What are you doing here? And then it came down to that last studio that you were alluding to before. And this was down the road a piece already. Ben and I go into pitch to this dapper silver haired exec. He and Ben knew each other since the 1940s. And I'm pitching my heart out for my serious Batman. And when I get done, he's shaking his head, you know, tisk tisk. He goes, Michael, you're out of your mind. Batman will never be successful as a movie because our movie, Annie, isn't doing well. So I said, well, wait a minute. Are you talking about the little redheaded girl from Broadway who sings the song Tomorrow? He said, yeah. I said, well, what does that have to do with Batman? And it was like, come on, Michael. They're both out of the funny pages. It was like I was in front of the Dean again when I was pitching my course. So he finally turns to Ben and says, look, Ben, you and I go back a long way. If you boys really want to make a Batman movie, I will consider it, but it's got to be that funny pot-bellied pal zap wham guy from TV because that's the only Batman that audiences will know and love. And I said, no. And with that, he rolls his chair over, gets down face to face and goes, son, better to have a movie made than no movie at all. And I said, no, that was the end of the meeting. So we're now on a park bench on the studio lot. It's me and Ben. Ben was my dad's age. And I'm as despondent as you can be. I'm sitting there, heads down. That was it. That was our last shot. And Ben turns to me, he goes, you know, Michael, isn't it ironic that the last no we received came from you? He said, you know what that makes you? I said, yes, Ben, an idiot. He says, no, 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 no. He says, Michael, you just gave up a lot of money and a chance to produce your first big motion picture because you are dedicated to a particular vision of Batman that you believe is the true vision of his creators. And you just turned all that down. He said, you're Batman's defender. You're Batman's protector. You're Batman's Batman. Hey, it's Mike. Passive income is one of this year's hottest buzzwords, but what is it? Well, passive income is when the elite make money and the rest of us sleep. Here at Norhart, we decided to open up this opportunity to everyone by giving you the chance to invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates without doing a thing. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and see what you can build towards. This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. What I love here is that Michael really owned it. 
He knew what he wanted to accomplish. He knew the vision and he held to it even though times would get tough, painful even. It took longer, but it was ultimately more successful as a result. Bottom line is I never got into this for the money. I got into this for the passion and to do right by Batman. Um, so Ben said, come on now. There's other places we can go besides studios. There's foreign sources of money. There's other, there's independent distribution. Let's redouble our efforts now. And we jumped off that bench into movie history. What comes next is the struggle. This would become a 10 year long battle between the forces of truth and justice to bring Batman to life on the big screen. But just what is it like in that wilderness? It was a human endurance contest. Imagine 10 years of rejection, 10 years of development hell where nothing's happening, or you take one step forward, then you take two or three back. Uh, this director's in, that director's out. That director's in, this director's out. This, I mean, it was a nightmare. Completely different, completely different. And I have to worry because I quit my job at United Artists, which was very secure. I mean, I had a weekly paycheck. I had medical and dental plan. Um, I had a bonus. And I gave it all up when my wife was 9.1 months pregnant with our first child. And we were building our first home. And I gave up the entire security net only because she said, go for it. She said, I think with Batman in your pocket, you probably have a 51% chance of making it out there in Hollywood. Try now. Better now than a year from now when I have uh, a baby and a mortgage. As, as it was 10 years of not knowing where your next dollar is going to come from, of trying to figure out how you're going to pay next week's bills, never mind next month's bills. 10 years of people telling you you suck, your idea stinks. Let me tell you, it tests your mettle as a human being. You have to look deep inside yourself and say, okay, wait a minute. Is everybody else right? And I'm just being stubborn or do I truly, truly believe in this? And do I truly, truly believe in myself? And I kept coming up with the latter answer. Um, Tim came in, uh, I think through Roger Birnbaum, who was one of the greatest executives in the history of the film industry. And I think he also brought in Sam Hamm. Uh, my memory is getting fuzzy, but I think so. So I get the call. I said, we've got this guy who's doing a movie for us and he's a Disney animator and he's now directing a live action picture. We want you to see it. So they set up a screening at the studio. I went to see the fine cut of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And I walked out of there and said, I have never seen a more creative combination of art direction and direction in my life. I would love to meet this guy. So they set up three lunches for me and Tim. My job was to A, indoctrinate him into the world of Batman. I was surprised to learn he was not a comic book guy. I assumed he would have been. Um, so I had to do that. But B, more important, I had to keep him away from the silly, crazy stuff. So I gave him as the source material from my collection, either the originals or reprints, 
uh, Detective Comics 27 through 38, The Origin of Batman, First Robin Story, Batman number one, first appearance of Joker and Catwoman. I gave him the Denny O'Neill, Irv Novick, um, Neil Adams, Batman run of the 70s. I gave him the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers short run at, at around that time. And that's what I gave him. He never saw Merman Batman, Robot Batman, Genie Batman, Rainbow Batman. Never saw any of it. And by the end of the third lunch, I said, okay, this is the guy. This is him. Okay, let's pause again. I think people in today's culture think that success or your next big break should come easily. Or at very least, it should come after three to six months of hard work. But that's not the reality. It took Michael 10 years to get to the point where things actually started to change and come together. That's what separates the hustlers from the true visionaries. Not only the passion, but the dedication to see your vision succeed, no matter how long it takes. But what was that tipping point? What brought it all together? Well, Warner Brothers was already in with Tim. And so he had done Pee Wee's Big Adventure for them, and now Beetlejuice was up next. Uh, so they loved him, and they just wanted my input on it and to meet him and, and let, let them know what I thought. So that was incredible. The breakthrough, the utter breakthrough that changed Hollywood forever, that changed the world culture's perception of comic books and superheroes and supervillains came from the genius of Tim Burton. And the conversation was when Tim said, if we're going to do the first ever dark and serious comic book superhero movie and not get unintentional laughs from the audience, this movie cannot be about Batman. I would describe this as the most apoplectic moment of my life. I mean, imagine that instant hearing that. And I'm already like seven and a half years into this thing. But then he said, this movie must be about Bruce Wayne. We have to show a Bruce Wayne so driven, so obsessed to the point of being psychotic that audiences around the world who have never read a comic book will say, oh yeah, that's a guy who would get dressed up like a bat. That's a guy who would go out and fight a guy who looks like the Joker. And my God, he was absolutely right. And he had a corollary to the big idea. The corollary was from the opening frames of this movie, Gotham City must be the third most important character in the piece because we have to get audiences to suspend their disbelief, believe in Gotham City. And then they can believe a guy dressed up as a bat fighting a guy like the Joker. Now, when I talk about how that changed Hollywood and the comic book industry, think about this one. And Stan admitted this to me, and I'm sure Kevin Feige would admit it. That big idea of Tim Burton's was what launched or permitted the launch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We've all seen Iron Man movies. I love them. 
but they really should be entitled Tony Stark. We've all seen Spider-Man movies and enjoyed them. They should be entitled Peter Parker. That's the emiss. That's the essence. Tim figured that out. And that's why everything is different. It's great that Michael now had Tim Burton in his corner. But how did that unlock doors moving forward? Pinewood Studios, 1988. I'm walking through the five square city blocks of Gotham City that were built on the back lot. This is where the Bond movies, where Star Wars was filmed. And Ben was walking with me. Now, Ben is a legend in the movie business. He was the sole vice president, executive vice president that all divisions of MGM reported to in their glory days. He was chairman of their film selection committee. Ben put together the deals for Ben-Hur, Dr. Zhivago, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Gigi in their musicals. And as we're walking through, Ben's looking, he goes, Michael, I never thought in my entire life I would ever see sets bigger and more extravagant than Ben-Hur. He goes, and this beats it hands down. Um, I had my kids there. Uh, David was eight, Sarah was four. And um, Andy Smith was one of the key uh, drivers of the Batmobile. And he helped Anton in the first in the design work. Anton was a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, we went to the Oscars with him and his fiance that, uh, that following year when he won for best production design. And as he left the stage, and went through the press room, he came out, he hands the Oscar to my wife and says, this is too heavy. I'm not carrying this thing around. And my wife, like, like it was our baby, <laughs> the, the entire night was cradling it. I mean, we're talking geniuses and I don't use the word lightly. Um, Sam Ham's script came in. There was like a line described Gotham City to the effect Gotham City as if hell has erupted from under the earth. And Anton said, he asked Tim, well, I don't know what that means. And Tim said, well, I think it means New York City had there never been any planning and zoning. And Anton said, I get that. And he went off, studied conflicting styles of architecture and came back with the drawings of the Gotham City and the Batmobile and everything. And it is, I contend to this very day, to this coming opening weekend, every single genre movie since then has been influenced by the vision of Tim Burton, by the design work of Anton First, and by the musical notes of Danny Elfman. I think you can still hear them resonating. This is so powerful. Just with a little change of perspective, you can make a meaningful impact. Of course, what I really wanted to dive deeper into was Michael's experience during filmmaking. So uh, two, two quick favorite stories. Um, my daughter, who was four, had a head full of curls. She looked like Shirley Temple. And the four of us were up on top of the rooftop which was actually built inside the studio for the I'm Batman scene. I'm Batman. One of the most iconic scenes, I think, in movie history, as it turned out. And as Michael is filming that, and then he throws the guy down and then jumps off the, the roof, 
Sarah is like literally under his right elbow. And I said to the first AD, I said, I'll pull her back here. He goes, she's off of camera. She, she's, she's, she's out of frame. Um, and we're all there as this amazing scene takes place. But ever since then, every time I see it on a big screen, I'm looking at the bottom of Michael's right elbow, just for that little Shirley Temple curl that I can see. Well, there was one day we're in the executive dining room at Pinewood and Sarah's having a horrible day. There's nothing we can do to please her. And it's lunch break. Michael comes in, the cowl and cape are off. He still has the black around his eyes and the rest of his Batman costume. And he walks by the table. And as he walks by, he sees Sarah, you know, sitting there grumpy. He goes, Sarah, what's the matter? And she's going like, humph. And he winds up sitting on her lap and then starts to flick green peas off of her plate at her. And then Sarah starts to fire them back. She gets into a food fight with Batman, which changed her attitude uh, from then on. I got to put my two kids in the Batmobile and Andy Smith drove them through Gotham City. And what was amazing is when Flash opened up, Warner Brothers brought out the original Batmobiles from 89 and 92. And they had a special private showing on Melrose Boulevard. And I went there with my two kids and my grandkids. And it was the same Batmobile that they sat in when they were eight and four in Gotham City in Pinewood. And we got to put my grandkids into that. And, and that's kind of what it's like with the return of Michael Keaton uh, now. It's like the great circle of life. It's really pretty incredible. I, I never thought starting out that this was going to be anything more than my dream project, than anything more than my career, but it is and has been my life. Something hit me here in our conversation. Sure, the Batman movies have greatly impacted Michael financially. That's at the heart of a billion-dollar impact, right? It's the dollar? But this is where it started crystallizing for me. Tenacity doesn't care about the dollar. Michael had a vision, and if that vision was just about financial gain, tenacity would not have been required. When studio after studio was shutting him down, he could have sacrificed his vision in order to make one of them happy. But the impact he created by fighting for his vision, that couldn't have been done without passion. And in the end, what Michael values more than money are the memories he made. Even today, Michael remains incredibly busy, still working tremendous hours. It makes me wonder, after making such a significant impact on the world stage, why doesn't someone like Michael just take a break and relax? So let's go back to passion. Why, if you still have that passion burning through your veins, why, if you still have the sense of wonder you had when you were five or eight or 10 or 16 or 20, what is the purpose of giving that up? I mean, why? My dad had it. I learned this from my dad. My dad was an old world artist. He was a craftsman as a stonemason. You should see the fireplaces and the homes he built out of marble and brick and stone. And he loved what he did. Every morning, 
he worked six days a week from the time he was 16 till he was 80. He would get up with a smile on his face, couldn't wait to get to work. And when you grow up with it, with someone like that in your house, how could you not want that for yourself? How could you not want to wake up on a rainy Monday morning and say, I can't wait to get to work. That's a gift. And uh, what I learned from my dad is you got to get out and find your own bricks and stones. As you can imagine, Batman's story isn't over. I'll let Michael share what the future holds for the franchise. Um, it's play. Um, I'm happy to tell you that it's with the Niederlander Organization of New York. And they're at the forefront with the Schubert's of everything Broadway. They own half the theaters in Broadway. They own theaters all around the country and foreign places. Um, it's based on my memoir, The Boy Who Loved Batman. And it's volume two, Batman's Batman. As Stanley would say, get in the plug, Michael, both of which are available at amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Um, I also narrated the uh, audible book versions of each one, which was great for me because my idol was Gene Shepard growing up. And where Gene Shepard got to write and then narrate his movie, A Christmas Story, uh, I was now able to narrate my stories. And that was kind of fun for me. So the Broadway play is based on those memoirs. And it talks about what we've talked about today, what it's like growing up a comic book geek, what it's like feeling alienation and finding your community, what it's like having a dream, having a quest, and then taking 10 years with everyone putting you down in the process and challenging you and what it's like and why it's so important that you appreciate the journey. Because as I've learned, it's more about the journey through life than it is about reaching the mountaintop. And uh, it's very uplifting. It's funny. It's emotional. Man, I'm my parents are going to be on the Broadway stage. I mean, you know, I'm going to see my parents again uh, up there in my story. I mean, it's it, it's really an incredible thing, and it's moving ahead very quickly. Uh, upcoming, we have uh, Joker Folia Deux uh, coming October of 2024 by the genius Todd Phillips, mm. starring Joaquin Phoenix and Lady Gaga. And all I can say about that is... Batman 1989 revolutionized what a comic book movie could be. Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy revolutionized what a comic book movie could be. The Joker revolutionized what a comic book movie can be. And this next one will once again revolutionize what a comic book movie can be. I asked Michael... As he looks back upon his life, especially through the lens of passion and drive, what are the most important lessons he learned that might lead others to make a similar impact? I get a call from a colonel at West Point, and he said that cadets every year have a Cadets Choice Award, and it's for the person or character who best exemplifies the code of honor of West Point. And this year they voted the Dark Knight. They said, would you come and accept the award and speak to 4,500 cadets? I said, absolutely, I would love to. So we get to West Point, it's magnificent. And they said, it's gonna happen at lunchtime. So they take us into this meeting hall, eating hall, 
it's all stone, vaulted ceilings, flags. The Vikings could have built it, or I could have been on the set of Harry Potter. They take me up to a stone balcony overlooking a V of 4,500 cadets standing at attention at their tables. And I turn to the guy as he's ready to hand me the award and do the, the bit. I said, how long would you like me to speak? I said, I could do 30 minutes, 45 minutes. He goes, oh, no, no, no. He goes, our lunch time here is only 15 minutes. I said, you want me to speak for 15 minutes? He says, well, no, only for like three minutes. And then it's, here's the award, clap, 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 clap. Here's the microphone. And it went like this. Cadets of West Point. When Bruce Wayne was a boy, he saw his parents murdered before his eyes on a bloody concrete altar in Gotham City. At that moment, he sacrificed his childhood and made a vow that he would get the guy who did this, get all the bad guys, even if he had to walk through hell for the rest of his life in order to do it. In doing that, in honoring that commitment, in persevering, he became an urban warrior. He became a legend. He became the Dark Knight. I said, cadets of West Point, you are Batman. And with that, the place went crazy. I mean, crazy. And it went on for like three minutes. I, st I still get the chills talking about it, thinking about it. Um, about a week later, I'm at my office. I get a letter in the mail. I don't know who it's from. And it went something like this. Dear Mr. Uslan, you don't know me. I'm the mother of one of the cadets you spoke to last week at West Point. Our sons and daughters next month will all be going to Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran. And this is serious business for our families. I'm not sure you're aware of what you did last week, but our kids are walking around campus, high-fiving each other, bouncing off each other's chest going, I am Batman. You are Batman. She said, in years to come, when they encounter each other again on some foreign battlefield, this will be the calling card that you will have given them. And I can't thank you enough for that. Michael is truly a visionary. He changed this field for the last three decades with the tenacity, energy, and the drive to make his vision a reality where others couldn't even fathom it. Michael was the difference, and even today he's still working incredibly hard revolutionizing the way movies are made. Thanks for listening. Continue the journey by liking and subscribing to our podcast, and if you want to share it with a friend, we'd be good with that too.